What's up, nerds? Welcome back to another amazing episode of Boss Science, a podcast where I talk to wicked smart people and learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the feisty Grace Ingalls, and in today's episode, I'll be talking with Professor Tyrone Porter and Dr. Chen Guang Peng and learning about their completely non-invasive techniques for using ultrasound to help deliver drugs to the brain and even for treating cancerous tumors. So, you guys ready for some boss-ass science? Welcome to the show. Guys, it's been a minute, am I right? How's it going? You still hanging in there? Mm, Yeah, me neither. It's been a rough one these last few months. Sorry, I haven't been there for you. Between work, the holidays, the pandemic, the president, how is anyone supposed to get anything done? But we are here now, and that's all that matters. Goodbye, 2020. Hello, 2021. Let's see what bullshit you got in store for us. Bring it on, baby. Grace is ready. New year, new me. But don't worry. I'm still chock full of amazing science stuff to tell you. You guys excited? You should be, because this episode is going to be about some ultra-rad ways to use ultrasound. Now, I'm not just talking about using ultrasound to take some blurry picture of a baby in the womb so that you can show your friends and they have to pretend it doesn't look like a potato. I'm talking about using ultrasound to generate super precise images of the brain, to get drugs across the barrier and into the brain to treat diseases, and literally, guys, straight up destroying tumors. Doesn't that sound awesome? I'm sorry, I can't help it. The puns just come to me. But before we crack into it, just a few quick words up top. If you love the show, or if you've only rolled your eyes about six times so far in the episode, it would mean the actual world to me if you hopped on over to iTunes and gave the show a quick rating and review. A little internet love goes a long way, my friends, and it takes just a few minutes of your time but it makes my goddamn day. Honestly, it makes my week. Okay, fine, I literally talk about it nonstop for a month. You got me. I freak out when I read reviews, just like this awesome one left by Chris MHI. Chris says, Boss science is amazing, educational, and flat out a good time. Grace's research into the topics she covers is always top-notch. Her choices are fantastic and wicked interesting from start to finish. As a local Bostonian, it's awesome to hear all about the amazing science happening right in my own backyard. I cannot thank Grace enough for her hard work and for making Boss Science one of my new favorite podcasts. Chris, you are so welcome. God, you are such a sweetheart. You single? Okay, as promised, I kept it quick. I'm done groveling. Let's tear into this science, all right? Before we meet our guests, let's go over some of the basics, mainly on the topic of ultrasound. Now, you've all most likely heard of ultrasound before. You might have even encountered an ultrasound machine throughout your lives. Pregnant parents use ultrasound to check on the development of their wee baby in the womb. Physicians use ultrasound to check blood flow through the heart. And, if you're real unlucky, 
you've had a doctor use an ultrasound machine to show you the kidney stones that you've developed and will now have to pass through your urinary tract and then exit your body. Ugh, not cute. But what exactly is ultrasound, and why does it do the magical things it does? Well, let's back it up and talk about sound first. Sound, just like light or heat, is a form of energy that travels as a wave. Take a guitar string, for example. Sound waves are created when you pluck the string, and these waves will travel across the room, vibrating the molecules in the air, and eventually in our ears. And that's why we're able to hear the guitar note. However, not all sounds are audible to us, like ultrasound. The only difference between ultrasound waves and regular sound waves, like the ones from the guitar string, is the frequency at which the wave vibrates. Any musicians listening might recognize this by another definition, the pitch. So scientists can measure the wave's frequency, or the sound's pitch, by measuring the number of cycles per second, aka hertz. Does all this info hurts your brain yet? <laughs> I'm sorry, please don't leave. I'm done. The human ear can hear between about 20 and 20,000 hertz. Any waves with a higher frequency than that is called ultrasound. Ah, yes, you get it now. As with many things in life, just because humans can't see it, or in this case, hear it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There are so many examples of ultrasound in nature. In fact, the entire premise of all of our ultrasound technology is based on the concept of echolocation, which is the process of using ultrasound to determine an object's location in space. Not outer space, either. It happens all the time in regular Earth space, too. The most famous example for this being bats. Bats are fantastic at using echolocation to navigate and to hunt for food. If you haven't seen this in action yet, I highly recommend it. Go on Google and look up British Guy, Nature Documentary, and Bats, and then watch in the highest resolution a slow-mo video of a bat snatching a bug from midair while the warm and sultry tones of David Attenborough fill your ears. I may or may not watch a little too much Planet Earth. So how does this echolocation thing work? All right, so imagine you're an adorable little fruit bat hanging from a tree branch looking to rustle up a hot meal for dinner. First thing you'll do is send out an ultrasound wave from your mouth, which is apparently no big deal. You can do it all the time. This ultrasound wave will travel through the air until it hits an object. In this case, nice juicy moth. When the ultrasound wave hits this moth, a certain amount of the sound wave bounces off the moth and heads right back to you. This returning sound wave is called an echo, and it's exactly what you've been waiting for. This echo actually holds in an enormous amount of information about the object it's bouncing off of. And by listening for the echo, your surprisingly smart bat brain is able to figure out where an object is, how big it is, and even its shape. Sensing the moth's present, you drop from your branch, swoop down on the unsuspecting moth, and now you've got yourself a delicious and fuzzy treat. All thanks to the power of ultrasound. Now, bats have got this echolocation shit down on lock. In fact, bats' echolocation ability is so sensitive that they can detect an object as thin as a human hair in complete darkness. Meanwhile, I'm over here accidentally knocking my cat off the bed at night because I didn't realize she was curled up six inches away from my face. Sorry, Cheddar. 
Although humans haven't quite figured out how to echolocate as well as bats can, we have learned a thing or two about ultrasound. In the early 1920s, physicist Paul Langvin created an ultrasound device used to detect objects on the bottom of the ocean. Later, in the 1940s, scientist Carl Dusick produced the first sonogram for medical diagnoses by directing an ultrasound beam through a patient's skull to detect a brain tumor. And then, in the late 1950s, Dr. Ian Donald was the first to incorporate ultrasound into the field of OBGYN. Since then, ultrasound technology has grown not only as a way to monitor a developing fetus, but is also used to measure blood flow through the heart and major blood vessels, to find kidney stones and break them apart, and even as a way of detecting early signs of prostate cancer. Now, don't get me wrong, using ultrasound for imaging and diagnoses is fantastic. Very cool stuff. But is it possible to use ultrasound for more? That is what the researchers at Boston University's Nanomedicine and Medical Acoustics Lab are trying to find out. This lab, called the Nanometal for short, is focused on developing new stimuli-responsive biomaterials, aka materials that are sensitive to changes in pressure, pH, or temperature, for both diagnostic and therapeutic applications. What does that even mean? Let's talk to one of the researchers at the Nanometal to find out. Hi, my name is Chen Guang, and I recently graduated from BU in Biomedical Engineering Department. And by recently graduated, he means real recent. Because literally just days before our interview, Chen Guang successfully defended his PhD dissertation. No easy feat in the middle of COVID, I'm sure. So let's all give a round of applause to the now Dr. Chen Guang Peng. In fact, any graduation while dealing with a lockdown and a pandemic is an astronomical feat. So let's give a round of applause for everyone out there crushing those degrees in a less than optimal situation. So before he started his PhD at Boston University, Cheng Wang grew up in China and got his bachelor's degree in physics and engineering, which is where he first got interested in all the work that you'll hear about today. In college, I got super interested in medical imaging and also the biotechnology. So that actually motivated myself to pursue my PhD degree in BU, focusing on translational research. And specifically, I work on therapeutic application of ultrasound, using it as either a way to kill the tumor directly or increase the drug delivery efficiency uh, into the tumors. Did you know that people could use ultrasound to do that? I sure as hell didn't. In fact, basically all of the research at the nanometal blew my mind when I first learned about it, especially when I first learned about the concept of using ultrasound to manipulate tiny gas vessels inside the body, called microbubbles. Ever heard of those before? Me neither. So let's get some help defining it, shall we? A microbubble is a gas vesicle that typically is not stable in, or short-lived in the water. And in our lab, we specifically coat this transient gas bubble with a lipid shell so that we can stabilize it and make it long-lived. And for this microbubble, they typically has a size of a couple micrometers. So that's why we call, why we call it microbubble instead of nanobubble rock. And for this microbubble, so essentially composed of a lipid shell and a gas core. And for the lipid shell, we use the lipid that is normally exists in our human body. So it's pretty biocompatible. And regarding the gas core inside this microbubble, 
we use uh, inner gas called perfluorocarbon, uh, it is not reacting to most of the agents in our body. So we consider it as, as safe and easy to use and uh, in, in the body. So that's a micro bubble. Safe and easy to use, two of my favorite things. And honestly, it can be difficult to meet those criteria in the field of biotechnology. The safety of the technology all comes down to the simple composition of the microbubbles themselves. Since these microbubbles are about the same size and shape of red blood cells, they can easily move through the bloodstream without getting stuck. Very safe. The lipids that coat the exterior of the microbubble? The same lipids that you would find all throughout the body, in our cell membranes, our blood cells, in our brain. Again, very safe. And finally, the gas that makes up the interior of the microbubble? It's called perfluorocarbon, a well-known compound found in both liquid and gas form, which has been shown to be chemically inactive, non-toxic, and non-flammable. In fact, perfluorocarbons have been proven to be one of the most inert organic materials known to scientists. While doing some research on it, I came across an article that had the absolute best line in the world. And this person, who has a doctorate, wrote, and I quote, One can drink perfluorocarbons by the liter without any side effects, other than wet pants. As someone who has read hundreds of scientific articles, I can tell you that's about as funny as they get. So, the size, shape, and all the components of the microbubbles are, without a doubt, safe to use. Which is important because we want to put these eventually in real human bodies. So, where's the catch? They must be, like, really hard to create then, right? So, the synthesis process started with a lipid solution. Essentially, you have this lipid evenly distributed across the water liquid, essentially. And we uh, mix this water uh, lipid solutions with a perfluorocarbon gap. In order to do so, we first put the lipid solution in a sealed container, and we replace the cap space uh, of air with the perfluorocarbon gas, and we shake these containers uh, using really fast speed so that we can generate this microbubble uh, by just high-speed shaking. Oh, wow. So that's a pretty easy and straightforward process of synthesize a, a microbubble. And I think the trick in, in here is what is the speed you want to use to shake it? This will generate different sizes of a bubble. The faster you sh- uh, shake it, you're supposed to get smaller bubble. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our lab, we use a really fast shaker to achieve this goal. And the lipid solution is also, uh, you know, important because you want to design this microbubble that you can circulate in the body for a relatively longer period of time. That's really cool. I thought it was going to be a lot more complicated than that. It sounds I, like it's just a little shake and bake and I it's ready to go. I agree with you. So, you know, when I joined the lab, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to learn a lot of, you know, chemi, you know, chemical engineering stuff. But yeah. it turns out that with an electrical background, electrical engineering background, I can still, you know, get the idea pretty quickly. And it's surprisingly a simply, really, really simple process. That's awesome. Very cool. And how long, once you make these microbubbles, how long do they last before they pop? Fantastic. That's a great question. And that's a million dollar question, actually. So <laughs> just in short, commercial bubbles are relatively short-lived in the body. But if we store them in a glass vial with the gas that we make them, they relatively stay a longer period of time, uh, ranging from a couple months to a year. Oh, so wow. usually for clinical uh, practice, people just store them in a special fridge so that maintain, let's say, 4 degrees Celsius. 
so they can survive for an extended period of time before use. And they will take out the microbubble and inject into the patients if they want. There are a lot of research actually going on just to improve the survivability of these microbubbles uh, either in the body or just you know in the storage condition. So that's actually a really important uh, research area. Yeah. I never would have thought that these little tiny things would be so easy to make, which is a good thing because these microbubbles can be used in some really incredible ways, especially when you involve ultrasound. So once you actually form the microbubbles and you inject them into the body, how mm-hmm. do you actually use ultrasound to move the bubbles? Another good question. So essentially, microbubbles are gas vesicles and So we know gas are really compressible. Wait, hold on. We know what? I didn't know that. But to be fair, I did sleep through a lot of my physics classes. Don't look at me like that, all right? I refuse to believe that I'm the only one who's ever taken a nap in class. At least I showed up at all, right? So compressibility is the measure of how much a given volume of matter decreases when placed under pressure. Some types of matter, like liquids or solids, are considered incompressible, because if we were to put pressure on these types of materials, there would essentially be no change in volume. This is because the atoms that make up a liquid or a solid are already very close together, so they can't really be packed together any more than they already are. Gases, on the other hand, have lots of empty space between their atoms. On average, for a gas at room temperature and standard pressure, The distance between each gas molecule is about 10 times the size of a single gas molecule. So these guys are great at socially distancing. Unlike some people. All this empty space between gas molecules means that when a gas is compressed, the gas particles are forced closer together, and the overall volume of the gas decreases. Gases can be compressed naturally, such as when you submerge under lots of water, like in scuba diving or when you travel high above the Earth's surface, like in an airplane. In both scenarios, you encounter changes in the atmospheric pressure, which you have to accommodate for or you risk suffocating or just blowing up. Luckily, humans have been able to artificially compress air, such as the air in scuba tanks or the pressurized cabins in airplanes. So what does this have to do with ultrasound? Well, it turns out that when a sound wave travels, it actually creates a mechanical effect on the surrounding environment, specifically by creating changes in the atmospheric pressure. One cycle of an acoustic wave is composed of an equal positive and negative pressure change. As we just learned, gases can change their volume based on changes in pressure. So that means when introduced to a sound wave, a gas will expand and contract as the sound wave passes. This expanding and contracting is known as oscillating, and it's actually a pretty big deal for microbubbles. So this uh, microbubble can essentially oscillate under this change pressure field, which is generated by focus ultrasound. So we use focus ultrasound to generate this oscillation of microbubbles, and then the oscillation of microbubbles could exert physical stress onto surrounding environments, either blood vessels or some tissue organs directly, so that we can generate bioeffects as we need to. And, you know, based on how hard we drive these bubbles, we have totally different regimes of uh, bioeffects, either from, you know, just the blood-brain barrier disruption, which we might go into a little bit later, 
towards directly uh, rupture the blood vessel, which in here we want to rupture the tumor vasculatures so that we can essentially damage the tumor in this way. So you essentially use the same system to drive the micro bubble, but depending on how much power you put into the ultrasound system, this micro bubble can respond totally differently. Yeah. That's so cool. I didn't realize that you could have this whole range of effects mm-hmm. just based on the same device. That's awesome. Right. So that's actually pretty cool. So you have a regime called stable cavitation, means the stable oscillation of micro bubble. So we're not popping it. Gotcha. And there is a regime called inertial cavitation. We essentially intentionally pop these bubbles and the collapse of bubble is going to be really strong so that we can generate potential damage to the surrounding oh, environment. So wow. these are the two regimes that I briefly mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. How cool is that, guys? Just depending on how much our microbubbles are wiggling, they can react in totally different ways. So what are the different ways that we can use these microbubbles? So when we're working in the stable cavitation regime, that means that the microbubbles are under control. They're just rocking along to the ultrasound waves, vibing, one might say. And what's really useful about microbubbles in this stable regime is that when hit with just the right frequency of ultrasound, they will actually sing. Okay, so they ain't no Beyonce. But when hit with a very specific frequency of sound waves, called the resonant frequency, the microbubble will vibrate extra hard and actually produce its own sound wave. The ultrasound machine will hear this new sound wave generated by the microbubble in addition to its own echoed sound wave, and now it's able to get a much better picture of what's going on in the body. Can you imagine if someone could use this to actually image what's going on real-time inside your bloodstream? Well, don't worry, it's already being worked on. Actually, that's a really hot research topic right now. It's called super-resolution ultrasound. And previously, people used ultrasound to just see the echoes from the bubbles. So this microbubble only exists in the blood vasculature so that you essentially highlight the vasculatures using this microbubble. And, it's, and the signal is pretty strong. The scattering from the microbubble are way stronger, several magnitudes stronger than the tissue. So essentially, you can generate a really nice uh, blood vasculature distribution of you know, bodies. It's called uh, ultrasound geography. And researchers are really trying to push it even further by increasing the resolution that they can image the single bubbles. So instead of you see the blood vessels, you can see a single bubbles moving in the body so that you can really see what's actually going on. And this has been used to image the baby's brain development when the baby is still, uh, you know, in his mom. I think that's super excited to see that there are a lot of cool research going on to just trying to push this imaging uh, technology forward. Wow. Can you imagine what a microbubble ultrasound map of the brain would look like? Well, you don't have to imagine. You can head on over to the show's Instagram, at BOS Science, or Facebook, Boss Science Podcast, where you can see a photo of exactly that. And guys, it's a work of art. I'm not kidding. It's this beautifully delicate, almost watercolor-esque image of thousands of lines that cross and intertwine. Words just don't do it justice. So go check out what I mean. I want to print that out and hang it up over my bed so that I can stare up at it and think about the beauty of science as I fall asleep each night. Some people might have rock star posters in their room. Well, I have ultrasound images in mine. Haters gonna hate. 
Another really amazing use for the microbubbles in this stable cavitation regime, as they say, is their ability to help cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, if you don't know what the blood-brain barrier is, after this episode is done, go check out the soundbite episode on brains to hear all about it, and some really cool research on it too. But I'll give you the Cliff Notes version now. The blood-brain barrier, or BBB for short, is a highly selective barrier between the blood circulatory system and our brain tissue. Only specific types of molecules are able to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is important because you don't want to risk any unwanted pathogens getting into the brain and making us sick. But it also makes us hard for us to get drugs to the brain. However, these researchers have developed a way to use ultrasound and these microbubbles to break down the super tight blood-brain barrier, making it easier to get drugs across and into the brain. So essentially, uh, we know that microbubble exists in the blood vasculatures. With the microbubbles inside these vasculatures, if we oscillate these microbubbles with ultrasound, this oscillation of microbubble could lose the connection between cells of this uh, blood-brain barrier so that we can create a little bit space, just enough to allow molecules to get across this blood-brain barrier so that we can effectively deliver therapeutic agents across the blood-brain barrier and treat uh, you know, whatever the brain diseases we want to treat, let's say neurodegenerative disease or brain tumors. Yeah, so that's the idea, kind of like doing a massage to the blood vessels, and the massage can be recovered you know, shortly after the treatments. So that's actually quite important because we, we really want this technology to be used safely uh, in the body. And there has already been a couple of phase one and two clinical trials going on testing the safety profile of using this you know, microbubble blood-brain barrier disruptions to deliver drug into the brain. So, and the data has shown that they are pretty safe to use. And most of the, you know, I would say every patient at least got reported, got recovered from this treatment really nicely. And they, and actually immediately after they finished the treatment. So that's the, I think that's the beauty of this technology that patients can just walk in and have the treatment and just walk out without even feel any pains and the treatments are done. So that's pretty awesome. I think that's pretty awesome too. It's not often that I think of brain treatments and also painless at the same time. After everything I've learned about the brain, I would have never thought that we would be able to create a painless, non-invasive, and completely reversible technique to cross the blood-brain barrier. I'm literally shook. Now, one of the things that's been really itching at me the whole interview has been wondering what on earth the ultrasound machines that the nanometal uses in their research actually looks like. It, it has to be super fancy, right? So I'm curious, we keep saying ultrasound, and the mm -hmm. only thing I know about is ultrasound is when people get pregnant and they go mm -hmm. to the hospital to check on yeah. the baby. Is this the same machine that you're using in your lab? So it was an interesting question because when I first joined the lab, that was exactly how I think about ultrasound is the machine that we use to scan the babies, you know, for pregnant women. And I would say in short, they are different, but in a way they can also be similar because we use similar physical principle to design these machines. Uh, in specific part of it, we change the form and shape of it so that we can more efficiently deliver ultrasound energy. Okay. So to understand what's special about the ultrasound device used for this research, we are going to have to learn about how an ultrasound machine actually works. And guys, I promise you, this is going to blow your freaking minds. So buckle up. Remember earlier when I talked about bats and their echolocation? 
An ultrasound machine works in a very similar way. It first produces an ultrasound wave that, when directed at the human body, passes through the skin and goes into our innards, as one might say. When the ultrasound wave encounters a barrier between two tissues with different densities, like between blood and muscle or soft tissue and bone, it produces an echo, just like the echo produced when the bat's ultrasound wave encounters a moth. These echoes are reflected back and picked up by the ultrasound machine, and by then using what I can only assume is some form of dark magic, the machine is able to calculate the distances and intensities of the echoes and form a final 2D image, which is the sonogram we've all come to know and love. Take a look at the show's Instagram to see what I mean. There are a few different parts that make up an ultrasound machine. The display, which shows us the sonogram image I just mentioned. The computer, which does all the dark magic, I mean, calculations, to create the displayed image. And finally, the transducer probe. The ultrasound transducer is the heart of the machine, as it's the device responsible not only for producing sound waves that go into the body, but also for receiving the resultant echoes. This is the part of the machine that will change depending on how the ultrasound is going to be used. So how does the transducer probe produce and capture ultrasound waves? Surprisingly, thanks to crystals. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Crystals. Inside of an ultrasound transducer probe is an array of what the experts call piezoelectric crystals. These magical crystals are actually able to change shape when zapped with an electric current. The rapid change in shape results in mechanical vibrations of the crystal. And from this, a sound wave is created. And can you guess what types of sound waves these crystals are able to create? That's right, ultrasound waves. So yes, this transducer uses electrically charged crystals to create the ultrasound waves that are sent into the body. You think that's wild? I haven't even told you the best part yet. Not only can these crystals make sound waves when given an electric current, but they're also able to hear sound waves and turn those sounds back into an electric current. It's an all-in-one receiving and sending machine. More bang for your buck. By rapidly switching the transducer crystals between their sound wave emitting and sound wave listening modes, the computer is able to generate a real-time image of the tissue below. I'm sorry, hold on. I need a second to keep the brain tissue from leaking out of my ears, because my mind is blown. Shape-changing energy-emitting crystals? What is this, Star Trek? Okay, so while you're processing that, I'll move on to my point. Depending on the shape and arrangement of these piezoelectric crystals in the transducer tip, the ultrasound machine is able to generate different types of images, and thus are able to be used for different purposes. The type of transducer tip used for this microbubble research is a little different than what you'd find in a normal hospital visit. So to be more specific, in hospital we can see uh, the physician or nurses holding an ultrasound tip right, to point at either the abdomens or, you know, or breasts, whatever organs we want to image. And that tip, you, normally we would see it like a really flat surface, right? And this flat tip is used for the imaging purpose, but in our lab, we use a curved uh, transducer tip. So okay. essentially, this can help us to focus the ultrasound energy onto the geometric focus of that curved 
so that we can more efficiently deliver ultrasound energy uh, into the focus and you know, essentially spare all the other tissues uh, in between. So that was the idea. Can you believe that just by changing the tip of the ultrasound machine, you can entirely change what the ultrasound is used for? One minute, you're checking on a fetus's developments. The next minute, you're breaking through the blood-brain barrier. Wild. So I think we can all agree now, this microbubble research is amazing. But that's not what our scientist Chen Guang is into. He spent his entire PhD researching, experimenting, and writing about one topic in particular. Can I ask, what was the title of your actual mm-hmm. dissertation? Yeah, it's called Face Shift. No, all right, it's going to be a long title. <laughs> That's okay, so they called, all are. <laughs> yeah, it's called uh, Face Shift Nano Emotion Facilitated Focused Ultrasound Ablation uh, of Brain Tumor. <sighs> okay, he wasn't joking. Phase Shift Nano Emulsion Facilitated Focused Ultrasound. That's a lot of words that I do not understand. Luckily, he breaks it down for us. Yeah, so I think one important concept that is the core of my dissertation is called acoustic droplet vaporization. So just as kind of as the name suggests, it means using sound to vaporize uh, nano-sized droplets. So that, that is the idea. So we know that um, we have microbubbles, right? So what if we compress these microbubbles and force the gas to convert it into the liquid? So that was exactly I used for my dissertation. It's called nano emotion with nano droplets. And uh, remember, we can use ultrasound to create uh, a change pressure field. And if the pressure is uh, lower than the ambient pressure, we essentially create kind of like creating a local vacuum. And this vacuum can vaporize these droplets into microbubbles so that we have uh, ultrasound activable agents that we can targetedly activate everywhere as long as there's blood vasculatures in the body. Oh, man. That's wild. And here I was thinking microbubbles couldn't get any cooler, but I'm proven wrong yet again. So these nano emulsions are a really fascinating research topic, but the concept of an emulsion is something we've all come across in our daily lives. An emulsion is essentially a solution where droplets of one liquid are suspended within another liquid. These two liquids are immiscible with each other, meaning they do not like to mix well together. There's a type of salad dressing you might have heard of before, called vinegar and oil, which are great examples of immiscible liquids, because when you place them in a container together, they are going to form two distinct layers, one on top of the other, rather than mixing together to form one solution. However, as all you salad eaters out there know, if you were to shake the oil and vinegar dressing, you'd see small drops of vinegar form throughout the oil layer. This is exactly what an emulsion is. There are all kinds of foods that we eat that you probably didn't even realize are emulsions. Mayonnaise is a great example of an oil-in-water emulsion, while butter is a great example of a water-in-oil emulsion. I was having fun looking into all the different types of emulsions that are out there, but then I came across the words meat emulsion and decided the fun was officially over. These nano-emulsions that Chen Guang has worked on have much, much smaller droplets in solution than your typical vinegar and oil salad dressing. And they can also do a lot more than make salad taste slightly less gross. So why this is important, uh, I think is actually from the clinical knee, 
that using microbubble, you know, don't get me wrong, it's great to use microbubble, but microbubble circulate everywhere in the body, right? If we try to uh, focusly target something that is deep in the brain, essentially there will be microbubble circulating between the ultrasound system and the focus and the target we want to sonicate. So this microbubble is could potentially shield the energy or deposit some of the biofact that we don't want in the ultrasound beam pass. So that was actually a problem. So designing this activable agents called nanodroplets, we can activate this droplets only at the transducer focus to prevent any potential damage in between because these agents are ultrasound transparent because they are liquid and non uh, in incompressible. So that is the idea of using this uh, acoustic droplet vaporization process to facilitate the delivery of whatever biofact we want to deliver in a lo more localized manner. These nano emulsions are amazing. They are like the nanotech versions of transformers. They start off as an innocent liquid casually making its way through the body, but as soon as it gets the signal from commander ultrasound, the nano droplets transform from liquid to gas in the blink of an eye, ready to blow up tumors and save the world. Now, all we need is Megan Fox, and we got ourselves the next Hollywood hit movie. If she's not available, then... I guess we can get Shia LaBeouf. So how does one make these soon-to-be movie star nano emulsions? There are essentially two ways to make them. So one way is to, like you suggested, compress the microbubbles. And once you compress the microbubbles hard enough, the gas can become like a liquid inside. So that's converted from a gas bubble to a nano droplet. So that's one process. And the other process is to directly get uh, a liquid perfluorocarbon. Remember, we the gas core inside the microbubble is called perfluorocarbon. So remember, that's a, a class of inner chemicals. And essentially, depending on how large these molecules, uh, they, they have a range of boiling point. So all the way from a gas, you know, a couple hundred degrees Celsius to minus degrees Celsius. So you can imagine these chemicals is uh, either in liquid form or in the gas form uh, in ambient pressure and room temperature. In order to make the emulsion, we can use the chemical that is normally uh, a liquid form and mix them with the liquid solution like we previously used for microbubble. Mm. And again, we shake it. <laughs> we shake this emulsion so that they, the, the lipid is essentially encapsulates small drop of this chemical and form this emulsion. So I would say they're pretty similar, but, uh, and also they have similar uh, chemicals inside uh, the lipid shell, but, uh, for microbubble, is gas, so it's going to respond to ultrasound. But for these emulsions, it's actually liquid chemical, so uh, it's not incompressible, so it won't react to the ultrasound at all. Gotcha. So that's the biggest difference. So we now know what are nano emulsions, how they're made, and how they can shift from liquid to gas using ultrasound acoustic energy. Now comes the fun part. What can you use these nano emulsions for? Well, one really impressive use is what's called tumor ablation. Yeah, so ablation is more or less kind of like an alternative to surgery. Mm -hmm. So it's mechanically or physically remove or destroy the tumor or sometimes even liquefy the tumor in the body. So as long as the drug is hardly enough. So it's quite different than, you know, delivering our drugs or using, uh, let's say, uh, uh, therapeutics to go against tumors. And in my study, I specifically activate this droplets at really high power so that the inertial cavitation or inertial oscillation of this droplet is going to be really, really strong. 
And just imagine this droplet can grow several millimeter and from micrometer. So wow. uh, potentially, I, I haven't got solid data to prove it, but I think technically, theoretically, it could grow really large. And this grow pro- growth of the microbubble could displace the tissue and even liquefy the tissue oh and generate God. damage to the tumors directly. So um, essentially, that's how I, uh, I you know, damage, using these droplets to damage the tumors and pretty much not relying on the chemotherapeutics or any therapeutic agent. But you can obviously combine this therapeutic agent with this mechanical ablation techniques because in reality, people use surgery combined with chemotherapeutics and why not combine high-intensity focus ultrasound ablation with chemotherapeutic and even radiation. Sure. So that was actually what I'm going to move forward in future just to see how this is going to combine with other you know, technologies. I didn't think I'd ever be so excited to have a conversation where the term liquefying tissue has been used. But here I am, jazzed as anything. This process is actually an amazing feat of science and engineering. So you have your nanoemulsions filled with our suspended droplets of liquid perfluorocarbon. When the researchers turn on their high-intensity ultrasound waves and direct them at the nanoemulsions, the droplets are going to start to oscillate due to the changes in pressure, as we learned before. But because this is high-intensity ultrasound, there's going to be some intense changes in pressure around the droplets in the nanoemulsion. These huge shifts in pressure will actually force the liquid inside the nanodroplets to convert to its gas phase. There's a whole lot of science behind why this happens. It involves phrases like vapor pressure and thermonucleation, but we're not going to get into that because I'm not paid enough for that. But all we really need to understand is that when this liquid droplet turns into a gas droplet, it's going to expand in size. A lot. Going from a few micrometers to millimeters is like taking something the size of a dime and blowing it up to the size of a car tire. You can bet that would do some damage to a tumor. But guys, let's not forget, this is all done using just an ordinary ultrasound machine and a simple injection. That's it. No surgery, no probes, totally non-invasive, which could be an incredible alternative to what some patients have to go through. It is actually quite important to have this completely non-invasive method, especially for brain tumor, because most of the brain tumor, especially the glioblastoma patients, will experience recurrence because the surgery, uh, surgeon cannot remove all the tumors and the tumors sometimes locate in really eloquent brain regions. Yeah. And for the recurrent patients, a lot of patients decide to not receive a second surgery, which is actually pretty effective uh, to prolong their survival. And most of the patients decide to not choose the surgery because it was pretty harmful and the, the recovery process is painful. And some patients even lost some of their functions in the primary surgeries before. So. If we have a complete non-invasive method to ablate tumor serve as an alternative to surgery for the patients, you know, maybe after the first surgery, that would be actually helping a lot of patients receive this effective treatment to prolong their survival. So I feel like this is actually pretty awesome to use, uh, you know, design this mechanical uh, way to destroy the tumor as an alternative to surgery. Have you tested this system in quote-unquote the real world have you done any animal testing or is it moved Mm -hmm. to humans at all my me and tyrone and nason 
uh, invented this technology. So we haven't tested this platform in human body for sure, but we have extensive testing in rats and mice, so essentially rodents. And the results have been pretty encouraging that we were able to more locally activate these droplets compared with microbubbles. And at the same time, these droplets can also more effectively kill the tumors because they're really, really small. So potentially they can directly leak out of tumor vasculatures and create an impact directly to the tumors instead of only the blood vasculatures. Compared with microbubbles, they are much larger than these emotions. So you know, this result suggested that potentially this would be a great alternative you know, to surgeries for some you know, recurrence uh, brain tumor patients. So if I can imagine we really want to get more data done and see the comp combination with other therapeutics and test the safety in some larger animals and then pushing forward maybe to uh, clinical trials, who knows. And, but it might take years as I can imagine, but overall I, I think it's a pretty promising technology. Definitely. That's very promising and also very exciting that you guys were the inventors of it. That's, that's amazing. Oh my God. I'm starstruck. <laughs> it's not every day you get to talk to real life rock stars. And these guys are definitely rock stars in the world of ultrasound. But it's not just me that gets to ask these guys questions. It's time for me to ask your listener questions. As you all know, before I meet with the scientists on the show, I give you a little blurb about their research, and then you guys send me some absolutely amazing questions that you want me to ask during the interview. Ask, my darlings, and you shall receive. So the first question comes from Chris, and he was asking that he saw that the microbubbles you guys used were able to get past the blood-brain barrier and you were able to use them for brain diseases. Would you be able to bring therapeutics to help treat mental illnesses like depression or bipolar or DID? Exactly. Uh, our lab is testing this system uh, in rodents animal model with mental illness. And there has been some data suggesting is pretty effective to deliver the therapeutics to treat some certain brain regions that are causing these uh, diseases. So I think there are research going on and you know there has been some progress. That's very cool. And I'm curious, a follow-up mm -hmm. that another question listener Absolutely. had on this was, how do you actually test these ideas to see that they really work? Yeah, so you will have the same animal, sorry, similar animals, let's say two subjects, uh, with the exact same disease conditions. And you will treat one animals with uh, the combination of the microbubble with the therapeutics. And the other will just do a microbubble uh, sonication as control without the therapeutic to see whether we are able to uh, effectively deliver drugs into the brain uh, in using this method. <laughs> right, and you also want to do, uh, not only measure the drug concentration, but you also want to evaluate the, the mental or performance of the rats and that was a uh, pretty challenging because they're they're rodents they're not humans yeah they so, can't sit and tell you how they feel right the they can, yeah exactly so you need to design a measure like i say whether they uh, move correctly or whether they were able to solve the same puzzles uh you know using the same speed or improve you know or shorter time compared with before something like that to just test the idea so two listeners had the same question they were asking two parts, if you guys have tested these microbubbles on human subjects yet, and if not, do you have any idea how long until the treatment will be actually available to patients? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a fantastic question. And they have been already submitted to clinical trials. And actually our hospital, so I also work in Brigham Women Hospital and Nathan's is my advisor uh, in Brigham Women Hospital. And He's actually the, the inventor of proper barrier disruption using microbubble. Oh, wow. And he really pushed it in the clinical trials of this technology. And so far, we have two clinical trials going on, I think, if I, uh, if I remember correctly. One is uh, to treat Alzheimer patients. Okay. And the other is to deliver uh, therapeutics or chemotherapies uh, to brain tumors. So at least we have these two uh, projects started. In the clinical and trials already. In wow. the clinical trials, yeah. So that's, I think that's the first one. And we just started the Alzheimer patients. Yeah, actually we treated a couple uh, patients uh, last few weeks. So That's very yeah, and, cool. And, and in terms of how long it will take for it to be available to everybody, I would say long time because is, so essentially, you know, in order for the clinical trials to go through, we need to hire, you know, recruit enough patients and to test whether this is safe or effective. So it will take years to be, you know, available on the market. But at least the goal is to push it forward and try to make it as available to patients as soon as possible. Mark from New York, he asked, Mm -hmm. I thought that when injecting medicine into the blood, it's important to make sure that there's no air bubbles in the syringe because Mm. it could be fatal if injected into the bloodstream. So he understands that the micro bubbles are small. And he's wondering if this is the reason that they don't cause a problem because they're so small. Mm-hmm. And is there ever a chance? Uh, is there any ever any danger of the micro bubbles bunching up together to become larger mm. and potentially mm. fatal? Wow, that's a great question, Mark. In short, uh, there is definitely risk of you know bubbles aggregating together into large bubbles, and that is exactly causing the problems uh, you know a long time ago because those bubbles are not stable and, uh, and relatively easy to get together and merge into larger bubbles. So right now people have, for, for the current commercial bubbles, they are designed to be not aggregating with each other too much. And at the same time, we inject in really low dose so that they are really separate from each other. So most likely they won't aggregate into large bubbles. And another thing that helps with this process is that the microbubble are relatively short-lived in the circulation. In a way, it's not good, but in, in the other way, they can quickly outgas out of the you know, bloodstream. So it's not going to be permanently circulating in your body. So I would say most likely we don't have to worry about it, but there is FDA. Uh, I think last year there was a shorter period, short period of time that FDA posted a black box warning on this that people are trying to understand whether this is really causing the problem. But just like Mark said, as long as we're not forming those large bubbles, we won't be able to generate uh, you know, damage or occlusions in, in the body. Yeah. Sure. Awesome. That's a great question, Mark. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I never even thought about that, but then he posed it and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. What if that happens? <gasps> awesome. So we're, we're on our last listener question. Um, okay. so this comes Sounds from good. Kate and mm-hmm. Kate was asking, once these nano emulsions are heated and causes them to... Well, make thing or release the drugs. Um, mm-hmm. She asks, "What happens once the nanomaterials cool down, or essentially when the ultrasound mm. is not on them?" So she was asking, "Does it reform back into this liquid mm. nano emulsion, and how does it get expelled from the body?" Oh, that's a great question. And you know what? This is exactly um, what I have asked my advisor a couple of years ago, and there are literature showing that. If you use uh, really stable chemicals to form this nano emotion, 
you know, supposedly the boiling point is higher than, you know, let's say 50 degrees Celsius, these droplets can go back to droplets even after we vaporize it. So it's a reversible process. But for the particle that I use for brain application, we try to vaporize these uh, droplets as easy as possible so that we use a really low boiling point uh, chemicals to form this droplet. So this process is pretty much non-reversible. And sure. once they go into gas bubbles, uh, the gas will quickly dissolve in the bloodstreams and all gas from the lungs. And, and for some emotion, if we did not activate them, they will be pretty much uh, secreted using, let's say, the kidney or liver system. Uh, don't call me about that. I do, I, or spleen system. I forgot which system is responsible for it, but one essentially, <laughs> yeah, one of those is actually responsible for, you know, taking, you know, getting rid of these small size particles out of bodies. I looked it up. It's the kidneys. Always trust your gut, man. You knew it all along. I, I, would, I would say this is not a problem uh, uh, that is going to stay forever. Yeah. Oh. Guys, those were some boss-ass questions. Thank you so much for sending them. I hope you liked your answers. If not, well, that's too damn bad. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. So I think we can all agree the work that Chenguan does is pretty amazing stuff. But none of that work would be here today if the nanomedicine and medical acoustics lab didn't exist. And the nanometal wouldn't exist without the incredible Dr. Tyrone Porter. Dr. Porter was an associate professor of mechanical and biomedical engineering at Boston University, as well as the founder and principal investigator of the nanometal. On a lovely summer day, yes, summer, I know, I told you guys, this podcasting stuff takes a while. I got the chance to sit down with Professor Porter and learn a little bit more about the story behind the science. What got him first interested in the work that he does today? While I was uh, an undergrad, I had a, a physics professor who was really sort of engaging, and he liked to he liked to communicate and just get us excited about careers and things that one could do with a, a degree in STEM, whether it was in engineering or in physics. Uh, or in math. And so he would bring examples, articles, and have conversation about what careers one could do and all the cool science that one could do. That's great. And one of the articles he brought was on the use of lasers for trapping cells on Petri dishes, Ooh. known as optical trapping. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about this phenomenon, because just like Professor Porter, this blew my mind. So optical trapping also known as optical tweezers, is a technique that uses highly focused laser beams to hold and even move microscopic objects like nanoparticles or droplets or even individual atoms. There's a lot of science that goes into this, but I'll give you the most basic rundown of it because if I try and go any deeper than that, then I'm just pretending that I know what I'm talking about. All right, to be fair, that's me most of the time I talk anyway. So the best way to understand how a laser can hold an object in place is to think about how an object refracts light. This laser used for optical tweezers is highly focused, which means that the light at the center of the laser beam is going to be more intense than on the sides of the laser beam. Say we had a small glass bead centered in the middle of our laser beam. Since both sides of the bead receive equal amounts of light, that means that equal amounts of light will refract off of either side of the bead. However, 
If the bead were to move slightly away from the center of the laser beam, all of a sudden, one side of the bead is receiving more light than the other, which means that one part of the bead will refract less light than the other. Now, let's remember that light, just like sound and heat, is a form of energy. And if you remember your high school physics class, you'll remember Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Since the light that's refracting off the bead is carrying momentum, that means that it's exerting a force on the side of the bead. And this force pushes the bead away from the center of the laser beam. So now the bead must experience an equal and opposite force. And through the power of physics, the bead will move back in the opposite direction, recentering itself in the middle of the beam. How bonkers is that? Guys, do you not realize that this is essentially a tractor beam from frickin' Star Wars? I mean, we're not trapping the Millennium Falcon, but it's a start. This optical tweezer technology has been a huge benefit for the field of biophysics, and it's been used to sort through different cell types, identify cancerous cells, and to learn how molecular motors work. In fact, this technique is so incredible that the inventor of it, Arthur Ashkin, won the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physics for the work on optical tweezers and their applications to biological systems. I can totally see why this topic got Professor Porter hooked. It's been around for a few decades, but at that point in time, a very precocious, you know, 18, 19 year old, this was like freshman or sophomore year in undergrad. I had never heard of anything like this before. You know, you see Star Wars movies or Star Trek and you know about lasers and they're like really kind of cool and there's laser shows and laser tag and all those kinds of things. But to actually hear that it could be used for something medically related and it could be used for studying biology and, and, and actually be able to trap cells without actually physically touching the cells, like directly touching the cells. Wow. was really just, it was eye-opening. It was really amazing, to be honest. And so I was like, man, there actually are cool things you can do in science. <laughs> Beyond solving these force equals mass times acceleration equations that we've been doing for, you know, 10 years. And so I got really, really interested in biomedical engineering, just sort of based off of that one article and one conversation I had with the professor. I love it, guys. There's nothing more heartwarming than hearing how someone first got interested in the topic that ends up being the passion in their life. Shout out to my very own high school science teacher, Mr. Velardito, who is the most enthusiastic teacher I've ever had, and once gave a lecture on nanotechnology that blew my mind so much, that was the moment that I decided to commit myself to a life of science. And since then, I've never looked back. So Professor Porter finished his undergrad work at Prairie View A&M University, a historically black university in Texas, and, fun fact, the second oldest public institution of higher learning in the Lone Star State. From there, he traveled to University of Washington in Seattle to get his PhD in bioengineering, and after doing some postdoctoral training in Cincinnati, decided it was time for a change of scenery. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to undergraduate in the Southwest. I went to graduate school on the West Coast. I have not lived on the East Coast. I have not lived in the Northeast. And so maybe I should just give it a shot. Got to try it at least once. <laughs> Got to try it so I can hit all of the big parts right? of the check country. <laughs> I can check them off. Outside of uh, the Southeast, 
and I have family that's there now, so I can go visit. Yeah. But I had never lived in the Northeast. And so and, and Boston being the intellectual hub that it is with all of the universities. And my wife has a PhD in biology, pathobiology. And so we said, where can we both be gainfully employed as scholars with PhDs in the sciences? And there's there's not there aren't that many options. There's maybe maybe if you're not going to be at both at the same university in a college town. Yeah. Boston is one of the few places that you can really go and be happy, be gainfully employed. Um, And so we came here and have been here uh, ever since. Talk about a power couple. I love it. When Professor Porter came to Boston back in 2006, he started his lab and all the work you heard of today. But turns out his lab wasn't always known as the Nanomedicine and Medical Acoustics Lab, but grew into that name over time. I started the laboratory when actually when I first arrived, it was just the medical acoustics laboratory. Oh, okay. Um, my background, so my PhD is in the dissertation work that I did in the training was a, a biomedical ultrasound was a was a big focus, but I also incorporated some biomaterials into into my my training and my research background. So when I got here, I just I started the medical acoustics laboratory and nanoscience and nanotechnology was really, it was still sort of this emerging area. Um, it's much older now um, yeah. than it was when I first started here. It was probably maybe six or seven years into a lot of research activity on college campuses. And I recognized the potential, especially for cancer therapy, cancer therapeutics, and also some imaging uh, applications, diagnostic. And my, so my laboratory uh, added that to the research projects that we were doing. So I, I sort of transitioned into the nanomedicine and medical acoustics laboratory. So it went from being metal to nanometal, yeah. um, basically overnight. So I know you mentioned that you did your PhD in biomedical ultrasound. Um, is that what made you decide to focus on this, um, this medicine and medical acoustics area of the lab? Yeah, so I mentioned the optical tweezers from uh, undergrad and getting yeah. exposed to a kind of sort of a, a early form of biomedical engineering that used physics, a lot of physical concepts. Uh, and I was introduced to ultrasound through a research experience for undergrads funded by the National Science Foundation oh, cool. um, during my the summer between my junior and senior year. And um, recognize or discover all of the things that you could. And for me, it was like it's sound. I mean, when you think of sound, you think of people talking, you think of music. And I think everybody knows about diagnostic ultrasound for imaging a developing fetus or a baby. But I found out that there was so much more untapped potential for ultrasound for focusing it and burning, for example, a solid tumor. Right, which actually just got approved by the FDA for treating prostate cancer a couple of years ago. So this very minimally invasive way of literally just burning and destroying in a very, very controlled manner with image guidance to monitor the temperature, the heating, still non-invasive, not inserting any probes into the tissue, um, but you can destroy tissue just by heating up that tumor uh, in a very, very controlled manner. But this is all non-invasive. Right. And it's not something that there aren't many 
uh, undergraduate courses that talk about this in detail, and there are very few graduate programs that talk about it in detail. And so it's really hard to find out about all these great opportunities with ultrasound. But once I once I learned and I was hooked, I was hooked as soon as I found out about all the capabilities, all the, you know, all the potential that was out there. And happy to say I've been one of the leading voices in that area for the last eight, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Wow. And different ways that you can use ultrasound for treating different types of medical conditions. And it's been very rewarding um, to do to, to be a leader in that field. I'm uh, kind of glad I didn't know a lot about Professor Porter before interviewing him, because if I was aware of how much of a hotshot he is in the field of ultrasound, I would have been way more nervous when talking to him. Luckily, he's actually really chill and easy to talk to, and also has got some great taste in food. I won't tell you how much of our interview was spent talking about the awesome food from across America, but I will say, if you want a recommendation on what to eat while you're traveling across the country... Professor Porter would 100% know. So, aside from raving about our mutual love of great food, I asked Professor Porter a little more about what his goal was from the lab when he first started. So, I was curious, when you started the nanometal at BU, did you have any specific questions that you were trying to answer or address when you first started there? Yeah, so cancer was definitely a medical condition that I wanted to to try to 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 come up with very creative new ways to treat using ultrasound. And the reason for that is I, I, I suspect many of your listeners, many of us have either directly or indirectly been impacted by cancer. Definitely. A friend, a loved one, a relative, a teacher, a, a role model, someone that we know entertainer that we have followed their careers has succumbed to cancer or has had to deal with cancer. So for me, I was directly impacted. There was a a family friend. um, My parents had um, actually from college, they have been friends since undergrad. Um, All all were living in Michigan and we would see, we would see on a regular basis. And the wife unfortunately passed away due to cancer when I was probably, I think I was in high school. Mm, and 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 just you know it's it's you feel powerless you're not sure what to do you're not sure how to process or how how to internalize and in my mind i'm thinking we're such a world powerhouse in um, medicine in patient care in hospitals and in my i was just like how in the world could this happen why can't we treat and defeat cancer with all of the resources that we have? I started to read and try to better understand how cancer is treated, how it's managed. And many patients get chemotherapy. I mean, when you think about it, patients are treated with poison. Yeah. That's, that's the simplest way to explain it, if they're getting chemotherapy. And if there's just this hope that the poison will kill the cancer, the bad cells before they kill all the good cells that are in the body that we need. Yeah. And I, I, in my mind, I I thought that this is barbaric. There's got to be a better way to do this. There has to be a better way to either localize where the poison is delivered, how it's delivered, or maybe combine it with some non-invasive way to burn away the tissue and just destroy the tissue, destroy the tumor. And so that's what my laboratory has been doing. That was a, that was a priority. That was a, a, a focal area for my laboratory when it first got started. 
Definitely. Yeah. I I think that in the future, we're going to look back at chemotherapy the same way that we right now look back at our old medical strategies, like using leeches to try to Mm -hmm. remove stuff. It's going to be the same thing where we look back and say, oh my God, why would we ever do that? So you've been at BU for... 14 years now? 14 years now, yeah. Wow. And I've seen and talked with Cheng Guan about just a number of projects that you've had done in your lab. I was wondering if you've had a favorite project that you've worked on throughout the years. I don't know if I will say there's one that would be a favorite because many of the projects are very unique. Uh, A lot of the work um, are loosely connected. The one thing that will connect many of the projects in my laboratory is ultrasound. So things have been loosely connected. I will, I will say that that actually has been, if anything else, that has been, what have, it's been extremely enjoyable. I've been able to actually work on uh, an assortment of projects and not say that I've just been sort of narrowly focused on one thing and one thing only, or maybe two things only. I've been able to work on a variety of projects and that has, that in itself is what does make academic science really, really special and really unique. Because I do have that opportunity to say, well, you know what? Um, some of the things that we're doing right now in the laboratory could be used to help drugs get into the brain. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't have any background in neuroscience. I have no background in neuroanatomy, but maybe I can find somebody that I can partner with, right? So that might be what maybe is the most been one of the most rewarding things. Two of the most rewarding things is working on a, 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 an assortment of projects, but also finding different people with whom to work with. I mentioned the immunotherapy project that we're applying for a patent right now. I'm not an immunologist. Yeah. And when I first started talking with this, uh, my partner who is an immunologist, the complexity of the immune system just boggles the mind. There's so many different aspects and so many different control systems that are in place to regulate the immune system but it's important because then you suffer, if you don't have that, you suffer from autoimmune disease mm-hmm. um, that could attack healthy tissues or healthy cells. So you need to have them in place. And so I've been fortunate to learn about so many different areas of science. And that has been extremely rewarding and enjoyable over this course of my 15, 20 years in, in, in academic science. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm I'm of the belief that the best science, the best things in life come from collaboration, whether it's in science, whether it's in, you know, new ideas in the world. Um, I really do believe that the best things will come when you have people from all different areas, all different backgrounds, expertise coming together and finding something new that they can all work with. Um, So that's great that you've been able to have that experience as well. There's a there's an interesting thing. I'm glad you brought that up um, because I found a couple of articles and there's a book that's been written that actually proves, I think it was through sort of logic and math, that having diverse ideas is important and critical to addressing or solving complex problems. Simple problems you can solve with either either one person or people who have similar training similar or the same training. But for complex ideas, complex problems, you need a diversity of ideas and a diversity of experiences to come up with the best solutions and the most efficient solutions. Definitely has been the case in my experiences. That book that Professor Porter is talking about here refers to the work done by Dr. Scott Page, a University of Michigan professor of, you guys ready for this? 
political science, complex systems, economics, social science, and management. I guess he likes to keep himself busy. Dr. Page's work focuses on the many different roles that diversity plays in complex systems. And what's really crazy is that through his research, Dr. Page has been able to develop a mathematical proof which shows exactly how increasing diversity improves a team's ability to solve a problem. Now, the actual equation in the math proof has a lot of symbols in it that look suspiciously like something I was supposed to learn about in differential equations. But, alas, that's another class that went over my head. And I was fully awake for that one. But there's a fantastic article written by Brendan Bells, who breaks down the diversity equation into simple examples to show how it really works. And guys, it's so cool. I highly recommend checking it out. I'll put the link for it in the show notes. If you're a hardcore math nerd and want to read the original paper published by Scott Page and Lu Hong, you can read the article titled, Groups of Diverse Problem Solvers Can Outperform Groups of High-Ability Problem Solvers, published in the very reputable journal titled, Proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America, also known by its abbreviated title, PNAS, which, now that I'm saying it out loud, is probably just pronounced P-N-A-S, or at least I hope it is. I'm curious, what do you hope to do, or I should say, how do you hope to see this research grow in the future? Do you have anything specific that you'd like to focus on? I know you mentioned getting things to clinical trials. Is it really just pushing the translational aspect of your research, or do you have other ideas that you want to explore? The uh, brain applications of ultrasound proactively moved into that space. Mm -hmm. And for a couple of reasons. One is, as I mentioned earlier, treatment or management of brain pathologies, neuropathologies, very limited options, very, very limited options. And I do feel like, so uh, Barack Obama, when he was president, he actually launched a, a funding mechanism. He committed significant dollars uh, and financial resources to brain research. I think a lot of it's just dealt with, is the brain is considered kind of the final frontier. Wait, I thought that was... Space, the final frontier. Sorry, I couldn't help it. If the opportunity to use a Star Trek quote ever arises, I will always use a Star Trek quote. But while space research is super important, and believe me guys, I can't wait to get a space scientist on the show, research to understand how the brain works is still ongoing, and the progress is slow. But the best way to speed up research is with funding, and that's exactly what Barack Obama did when he was in office. Back in early 2013, the White House announced the launch of the Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies, aka the Brain Initiative for short. This $110 million initiative aims to support researchers developing new technologies that can create a better understanding of brain function and brain disorders. Some examples of the work funded by the Brain Institute is the use of deep brain stimulation to treat traumatic brain injuries, and the use of ultrasound methods to measure brain activity. See how I brought that point back home? Don't really fully understand how memories are created, how they're saved and stored. We don't really fully understand how 
um, you end up with um, uh, these cognitive dysfunctions or sort of these uh, breakdowns in neural networks and pathways. Yeah. We don't fully understand that just yet. So the brain, at least in terms of the body, is kind of this final frontier. And so there is certainly is a lot of research that's going on just to better understand how the brain works, right? But there also is definitely remains a need for treating the brain once it's diseased or starts to break down. Sure. And ultrasound does have the capacity for, once again, either destroying brain tumors, brain cancer, and the lifespan of a person once they're diagnosed is no longer than, on average, is no longer than 15 months, yeah. 15 or 16 months. So it's, it's really short. There also is currently no sort of approved standard method for treating Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, right? When you just have these misfirings in the circuitry in the brain. But how are you going to get access? How do you get to those parts of the brain, right? In a very safe way. Because just sort of opening, doing a craniotomy and just sticking your hands and your tools into the brain, once again, it goes back to this whole barbaric approach to treating cancer with poisons. Yeah. So is there a better way to do this? Turns out that ultrasound was approved last year or two years ago for treating what's known as a central tremor. And a central tremor, you can find this, there are a number of TED Talks on this that you can, you can let your listeners know about. You can look at this stuff on your own. But there have been a number of TED Talks on the use of focused ultrasound, transperineal ultrasound, for treating the central tremor. Just super quick, I did find the TED Talk Professor Porter was referring to, and I watched it, and it's real good. The speaker, whose name is Dr. Yuav Midan, but probably not because I'm terrible at pronouncing names, gives a few different examples for how ultrasound can be used as a non-invasive surgical technique to treat a number of disorders, including an essential tremor. And I won't lie, a few tears were shed while watching it. I love me a good recovery story. Check out the link in the show notes to see the TED Talk for yourself. Turns out that the thalamus, which is not a very large part of the brain, it's a very, very small region within the brain. The thalamus ends up being the key area in the brain where you, you see these misfirings, right? It's just sort of abnormal firing and behavior in the thalamus, which has an impact on people's mobility. Um, and so you see people that shake and tremor and it, it's hard for them to drink, drink out of a cup. Wow. It's hard for them to write with a pen or a pencil. It's hard for them to tie a tie. And there was clinical trials that had really amazing results that led to the FDA approved where you just use focus ultrasound, direct a number of different beams that all converge at the thalamus and burn the thalamus and only the thalamus. And the and it's an in and out patient procedure. And the patients leave with, they're able to write their names. They're able to hold a cup of water without wow. shaking and spilling. That in itself demonstrates the potential and the capacity to do this in a very sort of safe way. That's amazing. That that just seems like sci-fi to me where you go in it is and just go, little laser. Yep. You're good yes. to go. Out you go. See you never. That's fantastic. I, I loved one of the reasons I also liked biomedical engineering because I always thought of it as sci-fi in a way. And it's so exciting to see all these sci-fi visions come into reality now. I know there's going to be lots and lots more in the future. So that, that's very exciting. The future is here, you guys. 
We are basically living in a sci-fi movie. Imagine telling people from the 1800s that we've developed a way to use vibrating crystals to see inside the human body. We'd be called witches and burned alive at the stake. Or we'd be thrown into the lake with our feet and hands tied behind our back to see if we float to determine if we really are a witch, and then we would be burned at the stake. Humans are intense, to say the least. We have covered so many amazing uses for ultrasound technology today, and going forward, I'm sure that Professor Porter will have come up with even more incredible ways to use ultrasound. But, sadly, he won't be doing it in Boston. Remember when I said at the beginning that Professor Porter was an associate professor at Boston University? Well, that's because shortly after our interview, Professor Porter started a new position at the University of Texas of Austin. Although everyone is sad to see him go, Professor Porter has a lot of exciting things lined up at his new university. And I know that you're you're moving um, away from us, unfortunately, out of Boston yeah. down to Texas. So what's your next step down there? So one of the attractions is I, I will be able to work more closely with the clinicians. That'll be um, nice. And so I've already talked with the chief of neurosurgery, for example, about opportunities using ultrasound for treating brain cancer, brain tumors. I've talked with the chief of neurology about actually using it for treating depression, um, as well as um, potentially multiple sclerosis using ultrasound in this manner. And so being able to work more closely and intimately with clinicians and the medical fellows brings the work that we're doing closer to the clinic. And that has been, there has been significant separation, at least for me, with be, being able to, to begin to make that transition. So I'm really excited about that. The other one is also, there are a larger number of people in immunology mm-hmm. and are very much interested in using ultrasound for anti-cancer immunity. So for just treating an immune response in a very localized manner and and trying to recruit immune cells that can attack uh, the malignant cells. And once again, doing that in a very controlled manner. So there's a number of things that I'm really excited about, but definitely working more closely with the clinicians is at kind of the top of the list. I'm sure I'm not the only one who is stoked to see more of the work done at the nanometal being pushed forward and turned into techniques that can help real patients. So before I wrap up this episode, as you guys know, I love to ask a little Boston-based question. And since Professor Porter will be departing Beantown and headed for Bat City, which is apparently what Austin is called, did you know that they just have a colony of bats living under their bridge? Creepy, but have fun. I had to ask what he'll miss when he's gone. One of his answers will put some tears in your eyes, and the other will have you laughing out loud. You've been at Boston University for 14 14 years years now. I was wondering what has been, how has been your experience at Boston University? Do you have any specific memories that you wanted to share? So just in Boston in general, so the experience has been really amazing. A lot of ways because of the intellectual capital this year. And so you can find an expert in just about any area, especially in the sciences, especially sure. in STEM and in medicine. You can find an expert. So that has been really rewarding. There's been a lot of opportunity to talk with people about different ideas, research ideas. The other one has been, so, so Boston truly is a melting pot. 
you can find all different types of ideologies, philosophies, cultures, backgrounds, you can find in Boston. And I have been in other cities where that is not necessarily the case. I'm not going to name any cities, um, put them on blast. All right, we don't need to call out names. <laughs> but there have been some cities that I've either had summer internships or lived in for some considerable length of time. And I've been in almost every, every state in the United States wow. for more than just uh, an hour or two. Yeah. There are a few that are in the Great Plains. I haven't had a chance to get to like North Dakota and Kansas, Nebraska. But most of the states I've actually counted uh, with friends and, and they're, you know, continental U.S., I've hit probably 40 of the 50 states. Wow. That is impressive. <laughs> and yeah, so that many, many of the states are very homogenous. Many of the cities in a good number of the states are homogenous. And so yeah. that diversity of thought, that diversity of ancestry, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, sexual orientation, you can find that in Boston. And that has been definitely thinking just beyond myself, but also exposing our kids to that, that people have different philosophies and different beliefs. And that's okay. We're all different. You know, we all have different experiences and different upbringings, and that's fine. And I think that's very enlightening. And I think it makes us better as human beings to actually see that. I've enjoyed that part of Boston. I'm going to miss that uh, moving away. I know that you're very excited to go back to Texas, get some of that Texas mm -hmm. barbecue. Um, is there any food from Boston that you think you're going to miss while you're down in Texas? Uh, definitely lobster. Oh my lobster. God. My wife and I, we have actually been loading up on lobster <laughs> over the last month or so. There's a place in the South End in, in, in Boston uh, called the Lobster Roll. Okay. It's been open for maybe four years. It's a relatively new restaurant. So I'm going to, I'm going to definitely miss lobster and um, kind of the seafood culture that's very unique to the Northeast. The South, uh, especially Louisiana, has its own sort of seafood cuisine, yeah. Creole. But the the fish, the different types, there's just in in in, in uh, the Southwest and Louisiana and Texas compared to what you get here. So though, I'm definitely going to miss that. And New England, uh, this might be you might find this funny. Uh, New England hot dog buns. <laughs> That's a new one. I haven't heard of that. <laughs> I grew up with the, you know, the bigger hot dog buns that basically you end up losing the hot dog. <laughs> it's, it's for all bread. the toppings. <laughs> all the toppings. That's true. That is true. But I've gotten so accustomed now to the New England hot dog rolls, which now you can appreciate the hot dog oh. and not lose it and all of that bread. <laughs> You have the perfect hot dog to bun ratio. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm amazed that I have now. And to be honest, I, I find it hard to eat a regular hot size hot dog bun. I really do. The <laughs> New England hot funny. dog rolls are, that is, it is, you're right. It's the perfect meat to bread ratio. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Well, I mean, if anything you've learned from Boston, at least you can say you had the perfect hot dog while you were here, so. <laughs> I have had the perfect hot dog and the perfect bun. And I, I, have, I have family that is in the Midwest and the South, 
and they look at it and they're just like, what in the world is that? That is not a bun. That's a joke. <laughs> they just, they don't get it. They can't appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad I was you can appreciate way. it at least. <laughs> no, I was the same way when I got here and now I will specially order New England hot dog rolls while we're in Texas, that's have them so shipped funny. out. Just oh, so I we love can, it. Just so <laughs> oh, that's great. Man, all I want in my life is to have someone who loves me the way that Professor Porter loves New England hot dog buns. What a gem. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. And of course, an enormous thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr. Chen Guangpeng and Professor Tyrone Porter. You can learn more about the wonderful work done by our guests by checking out the show notes, where I've added links to the Nanomedicine and Medical Acoustics Lab and a bunch of other topics discussed on the episode. You can see pictures and videos of the research talked about today by checking out the show's Instagram, BOS Science, and the show's Facebook, Boss Science Podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at BOS Science to hear more about upcoming events and guests, and if you have any comments about the episode, listener questions for upcoming guests, recommendations for who you want to hear featured on the show, or even to just share your thoughts on what you think the perfect hot dog to bun ratio is, you can email the show at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you're a good person who wants to make my whole month better, you can go ahead and rate and review the show on iTunes. And who knows, maybe it'll be your review I read on the show next time. Now, since you're a good podcast listener and didn't stop the episode as soon as you heard my sign-off, I'm going to reward you with a little fun fact about today's show. So, I mentioned earlier that the human body is trash, and we aren't able to hear ultrasound frequencies, as the upper limit of our hearing is about 20,000 hertz. But that's actually not quite true. When we're young, our upper hearing limit is about 20 kilohertz. But when you get older, your upper limit of hearing decreases. That means children and young adults are able to hear sounds that older people can't. This led to the invention of what's known as the mosquito, a device that can emit sound at a frequency around 18 kilohertz. This frequency is low enough that young whippersnappers can hear it, but too high for the old folks to hear it. It was developed in 2005 by Howard Stapleton, who was tired of his kids getting harassed by the teenagers who hang around the local supermarket causing trouble. Using his own children as test subjects, which, kinda ethically shady Howard, but okay, Stapleton fine-tuned the frequency of the mosquito to emit an obnoxiously loud, high-pitched buzzing sound that was audible to youths, but silent to adults. Although there's some controversy over the use of the mosquito, I've seen the words sonic weapon used against it. The device has actually had a lot of success, and over 3,000 have been sold in the UK to reduce quote-unquote antisocial behavior. I think it's awesome, though. I want someone to make a coffee shop called the Mosquito Lounge, where they have this device blasting from all corners of the room, and there's not a single young adult in sight. That sounds blissful. If you're curious what the mosquito sounds like, check out the link in the show notes to hear a clip of it. If you hear nothing, congratulations, you're officially an adult now. Throw out all of your shot glasses and solo cups, any leftover Domino's pizza, and any high heels over four inches. 
It's time to replace those with chip-resistant wine glasses, a heart-smart fiber-filled meatloaf, and some nice orthopedic slip-ons. Ah, now isn't that cozy? All right, guys, I'm gonna have to let you go. It's already 8.30. Time to start getting ready for bed so you can wake up six times throughout the night to pee. Isn't getting older fun? God help me. So, I'll see you all on the next episode of Boss Science, where I talk to some wicked smart people and learn about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.